Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true October is Reformation Month at Foundation Church. Today, Pastor Mark teaches a lesson on humility from the story of the Roman centurion and from the life of John Bunyan. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, and it is indeed the meek that shall inherit the earth. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible tells us that he was despised, he was rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. He was childless, he was unmarried, he was a pauper who had no place even to lay his head. One leader of the Jews came to him and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And his reply was, the foxes have holes, you know. And the birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. He was saying, if you follow me, I can't guarantee you a comfortable place to stay. It was he who lived off of the goodwill of others. Fishermen and several single women. One, at least we know, who had demons cast out of her. And others who were of the most uh, base sort. These women gave money to the Savior and provided his living. Yes, he who was rich became poor for us, that we beggars could be called the children of the king. Amen? But let none of us, amidst all the fine people and all the fine things about us now, forget the dark alleys from where God has plucked us. It seems to me that the worst sins that uh, we are found in ourselves, the more tempting it is to forget and despise others who are doing the same things. David was such a humble man, uh, raising sheep, you know, under the stars, neglected even by his father when the prophet Samuel came to visit. Uh, But God called him from the sandy hills and stubborn sheep and exalted him to the throne of Israel. And so has God made us joint heirs with Him, uh, and we are the children of the King. Can we say thanks be to God? As God calls us to worship today from Psalm 131, let us remember the great power of humility. Everybody say humility. Humility is one of the great powers of the kingdom of God. It is who that shall inherit the earth. Everybody say it with me. It is the meek that shall inherit the earth. Psalm 131 is really, really short. And it's short uh, to accentuate its topic, which is humility. It is one of the 15 psalms of ascent that the children of Israel spoke. uh, The men actually did. Uh, The men would recite this. Their families would come. And when the men would come to worship at the temple, there were 15 stairs. And as they would go up, the stairs, each one, each stair would include a recitation of one of the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And um, here it is for us as God calls us to worship. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, and neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. 
Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of its mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Lord, let Israel hope in thee from henceforth and forever. Let us pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, you have exalted us above our enemies already, seating us in heavenly places in Christ, far above all principality and power and ruler and might and dominion and above every name that is named. Lord, we certainly do not belong at this feast, for we were those in the highways and the byways who you called out and invited to come to the feast when those you had originally invited would not come. We are the blind, the halt, and the maimed. And Lord, you have loved us and brought us in where we don't belong. You have healed us of our diseases. You have completed us where we were lacking. And Lord, we come to you in our sins, but filled with your spirit, ready to hear your word, to be changed, to be forgiven, to be more like you. Speak to us from your word today. Change us by your spirit. Feed us from heaven as we gather today. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. remain standing for a few more moments as I read my text for you today from Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. My sermon today is called Bunyan and the Centurion. Luke 7 1 through 10. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, Go, and he goes. And another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they were sent returning to his house and found that the servant 
whole that had been sick. Let us pray. Lord God, we come to this portion of our service where all of us here, including me, are longing to hear from you. Lord, I pray that it would ever be my heart uh, not to preach good sermons, not to be impressive in my words or speech, but to speak your voice and your words to the people of God. Illuminate these words that they may change us and make us like you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My grandfather used to say, He that tooteth not his own horn, the same horn shall not be tooted. That's supposed to be funny. Uh, The Proverbs says, however, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. Now we heard in our readings from the book of James, uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament, that God resists the, everybody say the, but he gives grace to the, how, how many people need grace from God? I do. I need lots of it. If we want to receive grace from God, we need to offer grace to others. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, your joy to heaviness. You know, Jesus said this Really what James is saying here, Jesus said this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember this? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall what? They shall inherit the earth. The message of James, uh, the message of humility, is the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus has been teaching about, he is about to illustrate to us through the story of his meeting with the centurion. You see, the children of light, the children of the kingdom need to be marked by humility. Not pretended pseudo loneliness, you know, like like uh, maybe an oriental man may bow very low, you know, but in his heart he's like, I'm better than that guy. Not that, but real inward understanding of the facts as they really are. That there is but one God, the true in the living, as the confession tells us, right? And it's not us that... Is And there was only one man whose righteousness can satisfy the Father of lights. It is Christ alone. Our righteousness is to God. It's filthy rags. Sometimes we can become very proud of our righteousness in so much so that we stink. We're so good, we stink. The world hates the way we smell, and your brothers and sisters in Christ don't like it either. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Some people say, well, I got something to be proud of. No, you don't. No, you don't. Here in our text, which chronologically follows the Sermon on the Mount, we find it in Luke chapter 7, we find it in 
Matthew chapter 8, Jesus finds in the city of Capernaum, he finds a Roman centurion. And he said that what he finds in him, he has not found among the subjects of his kingdom that was here, but it must be what he will find in the kingdoms, the new kingdom that he is establishing, the kingdom of God. In our text, it says, A certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent him the elders of the Jews, beseeching that he would come. Now, who knows what a centurion is? Anybody know? You know, you know again what a centurion What's a centurion? A Roman soldier, but what kind? It's a certain special kind. A Roman centurion... He's, a, he's a, a leader, and he leads how many men? A hundred. Now, if you're, if you're young and you're just learning the things of the Bible, it's easy to remember this because uh, of the prefix of centurion. Everybody say cent. How many pennies or cents are in a dollar? How many, how many years in a century? And for all of you lovers of bugs which I'm sure there are a few out there, and future entomologists. Uh, that's a scientist who studies bugs, by the way. How many legs does a centipede have? A hundred. All right. You, can we not have a few fun facts here once in a while? All right. Now back to Luke 7. The Roman soldier asked the elders of the Jews to ask Jesus if he would heal his beloved servant. This is very interesting to me. Um, you know, I've... I read a lot of the Bible, I study the Bible, I preach the Bible, and I did not remember this part of the story. Uh, if you read the account in Matthew, it's not included, but in the account of Luke, it is. So here we have a, a man who is a Roman, who is not one of the Jews, who hears about Jesus, and he asks the very people that should be excited about him to go get Jesus. Now, you know, the centurion doesn't know uh, that you know, that the elders of the Jews are not real excited about Jesus. So, but, but they are excited about this centurion and they like him a lot. In fact, he's a very, he's a VIP. Okay. So, uh, he said, um, could you go get Jesus? Now, something about this man can be told in these, in these very few words. He's a Roman, he's a centurion. He's over a hundred men, Luke. Okay. And he's well known, and he had built uh, something for the Jews. The Jews were very happy. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, what kind of a man could build a synagogue? Have to be a pretty serious guy. So this Roman centurion had built a synagogue for the Jews. But even though in his greatness he commanded a hundred men, he had built a synagogue that, which obviously meant he was wealthy. Um, what he's asking the Jews for. Is not for himself, but it is for who? It's for his, it's for his servant and his servant who is sick and ready to die. I mean, if you commanded a hundred men and you had a servant, the servant would be pretty low on the totem pole of important things. But he cared about his servant; he loved him. So, being a servant in the house of this man wouldn't be so bad. You know, many of us. Uh, find ourselves doing things, you know, maybe, maybe you pastor a church of less than a hundred people, right? 
And you can get to thinking of yourself as really, really important. You can get to thinking, look at all these people. Every week they, they sit there and they listen to me talk. There are people literally that it goes in their mind that they get the idea that they're great. Um, I don't know if, if this comes through uh, from me, but I, I certainly don't get that impression of myself. Every time I get up, I think to myself, God must love these people. Because God literally speaks to me every time I'm going to get in front of you and talk. God speaks to me and he gives me something to say to you. And Derek, when I hear it, I smile and I go, man, this is the greatest thing in the world. I get to be the guy who gives God's word and I get to hear it twice. I sat in as I study the word of God and I read the word of God and I write out these things, you know, almost word for word of this entire sermon is written out. It's like 20 some pages long. And as I'm, as I'm getting it, Jacob, I'm, I'm working on this and I, I will sit there. My wife will testify. I'll sit there in my chair and I'm just crying. And she goes, God's speaking to you, honey. And I'm like, yeah, she goes, it's, I can't wait for tomorrow. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. You know, tears are running down my eyes. Why? Cause God is speaking to me. These are not the, 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 the well thought out, you know, uh, great words of Mark Robinette. This guy loved his servant. He was a humble man. Even though he was in charge of a bunch of people that he could tell them to do anything. They could tell him to go into battle. He even mentions later when he talks about authority, he says, I tell my servant to go. And what's he do? He goes. He realized he had the power over this man, but yet he did what? Everybody say he loved him. It takes a humble man. He loves his servant. People who are not humble, they certainly don't love those that are beneath them. They have very little compassion on them. It seems like the rulers of the smallest kingdoms are the biggest despots. And sometimes fathers even can be this in their home. They rule their children with a rod of iron. You know, instead of being the humble men that they could be. And I think we anger our children. So they came to Jesus. They besought him instantly saying, this man is worthy. I mean, the Jews looked at this guy. He's got the money to build some edifice, a synagogue, a place of worship for them. This man rules a hundred soldiers. He loves our nation. He built a synagogue, they said. He's worthy that you should accept his request. Do you think Jesus was impressed by the centurion? Was he impressed by the centurion's power and his money? Let's put it that way. No. Maybe he was touched by the fact that a man with this wealth and power loved his servant. I think that's probably what attracted Jesus. Jesus didn't go, well, you know, wow, maybe I could. He's a person of influence. Maybe if I did something for him, the kingdom would really go places. That's how we think. Because we're We're stupid. But Christ understood, hey, what he's seeing here in this man isn't his power and his wealth and his position. He's seeing a man who loves his servant. So Jesus did what? He goes to him. And when he was not far from his house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not yourself. For Everybody say, I am not worthy that thou should enter my roof. That reminds you of anybody else in the Bible? Don't you remember Zacchaeus? He's up there in that tree. I'm coming to your house. Oh, <laughs> no, to my house. Oh, yeah, I'm coming. That humbled Zacchaeus. Jesus 
who could heal was coming to this centurion. He's, oh, you don't need to come to my house, Lord. I'm not worthy for you to enter under my roof. He said, wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. He didn't even come himself. He sent someone and he said, I didn't send them because I was so important that I couldn't come. I sent someone because I knew I wasn't even important enough to talk to you. What are we hearing from the centurion? We're hearing humility from a Roman, from a a, a pagan idol worshiper in Rome, in Capernaum. We're hearing humility. Say the word and my servant shall be healed. And he talks about being under authority and he talks about his servant even doing what he says. Jesus responds by saying, I have not found so great faith, not in Israel. Now, faith. I mean, see here what Jesus is labeling as faith. I'm not sure that it might not be thought of as more difficult to heal from a distance. But I mean, if God could heal at all, you know, does he need to be closer? Like if he's closer, it's going to be more healing, right? I don't really think that this is what... Jesus is seeing here. I think what Jesus is seeing and what the focus of this entire story is about, it is about the humility of the centurion. Christ responds to his love for his servant, his humility that he didn't want to come, his humility that he said he wasn't worthy to come under his roof. And even though the Jews said he was worthy, what did he say about himself? He said, I am not, I'm not worthy. Matthew 8 gives us even more of the story. When Jesus heard it, he said, he marveled and he said that follow. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, this centurion sounded to Jesus like someone in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that he was establishing. This is what the, this is what one of my people should sound like. He's hearing it from a heathen. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the children of the kingdom, the new creation would not be haughty or arrogant to now be among God's elect. But they should be humbled by the prospect. The fact that God has already seated you in heavenly places in Christ, regardless of what you did last week that you're ashamed of, regardless of how you know, far you fell short at doing your duty and you know you have. God has said, I have gone away and prepared a mansion for you. What should this do in our hearts? It should make us go, for me? But there are some of us and a lot of us when we're young in Christ who get proud. And this is ugly. Looking among our reforming forefathers this Reformation month, John Bunyan loomed far above the crowd in his lowliness and his humility. Now, he's after the Reformation, but he's still part of it. He is helping to reform uh, parts of the church that have not yet been reformed. You know, you, you couldn't preach the word of God. Even if God called you, even if your own church called you, if some bishop somewhere says you can't or you don't have a certain level of education. Uh, I think that... I'm all for an educated clergy, uh, but I think that maybe part of the reason why we have um, 
you know, most of the churches in our entire denomination only have one elder in them. And we have a great shortage. We have churches out there who have no one to lead them. Is because we require maybe more than we should at this time in history. But, but John Bunyan, he, he, you know, he barely went to a year of school, you'll learn about. But he felt a burning call on his heart from God. And he received a call from the people of his church. Now the most highly published English author in the world... John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, he sold more than 100,000 copies of this book in his lifetime before he died. And now this book is only second to the Bible itself in world publication. Can you imagine this? He is by far the most uh, published and most popular English author in the history of that country. But he was born in 1628 in a small village of Elstow outside a small town called Bedford in poverty and in forced humility. His birthday is not known to us, but his baptism is recorded on November the 30th of that same year in the nearby parish church of the Church of England. Bedford is about an hour uh, northwest of London. Andrew and I visited there um, when we went on our trip. We were honored to get to go there. I got to stand in the pulpit that he uh, supposedly preached from. I got to see the cell door that he spent so many years behind. Uh, I even saw a flute that he made from a chair leg and a a violin that he made from metal. He was a metal worker. But in uh, one of the first of his nearly 60 works, uh, there is is a, a, a short book called Grace Abounding. And this month, I would just, uh, there's a lot of good things you could read. But if you wanted to read something really short, you could read aloud to your family in, you know, a really, a really, really short spell of time, a couple hours, or maybe over a couple days, you could work on it a little bit at a time. Read Grace Abounding. It is the historical account from his own perspective of his life as a boy and as a young man and how he came to Christ. And I read it and it just, wow, tears started to flow. I I was on page, you know, two, and tears are flowing from my eyes. Bunyan was, in his own words, quote, without God in the world, according to the course of this world, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, it was my delight to be taken captive by the devil at his will. I was filled with all manner of unrighteousness, the which did also so strongly work and put forth itself both in my heart and life and that from a child I had but few equals, especially considering my years, which were tender, being few. I had no equal in cursing, in swearing, in lying, and in blaspheming the name of God. He was, he was a champion. You know, Paul says, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. But in my, <laughs> the only thing I can brag about is the bad things. And so he's saying, hey, you know what? I, no, there, wasn't, there wasn't a better cusser, liar, cheater, and blasphemer in town than me. Even though he was baptized, his parents were evidently not in pursuit of pious lives. And they did not teach him the fear of God, he lamented. His father, Thomas, did, however, to teach his son to cuss and to swear. And he taught him his trade as a tinker. Uh, You can call him a brazier or a tinker. He worked with metal. He worked with tin. He went around the area mending pots and pans. And his grandfather had been a chapman. You guys know what a chapman is? 
A Chapman is a trader of small goods. Like, you know, the Wells Fargo vehicle goes around and trades little things. That's what a Chapman is. John said he was vigorous at playing sports, especially on the Lord's Day. Isn't that amazing? So on the Lord's Day, he liked to play sports. And there was this game he liked to play called Cat. And uh, it's you take a stick and you hit this six-inch long thing that has points on the end. And it flings through the air. And there's all these crazy rules to it. He loved to do that. And he loved to go to the church, not for church, but he liked to ring the bells and hang off the bells. And they would pull them up in the air. He, they, he loved that. But he never was found inside the church as he was at the bells. But he kept company. His sinfulness... Knew no bounds, he said, and he kept company with uh, the lowest of the low of the delinquents of his time. He was plagued, though, because of this, with nightmares and fears of death, describing how he felt the devil might cause the church bells to squash him. And so eventually he quit ringing the bells. He, Jacob, this is funny, he's, he would ring the bells and he would imagine that the Lord would call the beam to snap and the bell to fall on his head. And so he would ring and hold at the same time and he was always ready to take off running at a moment's notice to get away. And when he did go in the church, he often thought about the bells and he would set somewhere away to where if God had the bell fall, it wouldn't squash him. He was haunted. He had short schooling in his life, and he would later give thanks for this, saying, quote, It pleased God to put in my parents' hearts to at least put me to school to learn me both to read and to write. That's all he learned to do. I think he spent less than a year. Tragedy struck his life and his family at an early age, at the age of 15. And you might go, wait a minute. You no, know, yeah, we're talking about he was this bad dude when he was 10, 11, and 12 years old. Any, we got any guys like that here? I hope not. But at the age of 15, John's mother and sister both died within a month of each other. And his father remarried only two months later. And this caused a rift between the father and son for the rest of their lives. And he was beside himself with grief and anger at his father. And so he enlisted in the army. It was during the beginning time. It was less than a a year later Uh, After the death of his mother, near his 16th birthday, he joined the parliamentary army, and it was during the first stage of the English Civil War. He fought in England and Ireland over a period of three years, and um, during that time, um, there was a young man who wanted to trade places with him when he had some duty. Uh, It's kind of hard to understand when you read read the account, but the man was standing sentinel who had taken his place. And uh, the enemy came and shot him through the head and killed him. And oftentimes he thought how God preserved him and saved him and that this young man had died in his stead. Bunyan's army service provided him with the knowledge of military language, which he used later in a book he wrote called The Holy War. And it also exposed him to ideas of these people who were called nonconformists. You see, after the Reformation happened, What was the temptation of the reformers was to be as hard and harsh as the Catholics had been only for their new set of rules. As they had imprisoned people and treated them bad, the Church of England and many of the followers of in the Reformation, they would jail people and hurt people and and do bad things if they didn't agree to their new doctrines. Isn't this what we do? God calls us out of this wretched state and then we get the chance to be in charge. And what are we? We're despotic as well. And so here the Church of England was rough. And they uh, had rules that were 
crazy. And so these, these people started springing up with all these new ideas. And some of these nonconformists were weirdos and, and they didn't believe right things and because we need to have an educated clergy. But, the, but people knew that when you read God's word, it doesn't say in order for you to lead a church, you have to have a PhD, right? In order for you to lead a church, you have to be blah, blah, blah. It says what you have to be in the word of God. But people always want to take, well, you know, we know what that says, but we think we ought to take it. And they go beyond it, beyond it. He came out of the military and was uh, single for a little while, but then he married. Uh, And even after he married, it says that he kept company with the worst people of the town still yet. And, um, but when he married, he happened to marry a woman who had had a godly father and he had died and, um, she always talked about her godly father. The name of his wife though, and the exact date that they were married was not known. Bunyan did recall. He said, my wife was a pious woman and she brought into marriage in her poverty, two things. You know, her entire dowry was two books. One is a book by Arthur Dent called plain man's pathway to heaven. And Lewis Bailey's practice of piety. And, you know, because he loved his wife and because they, you know, that was the only books they had. They didn't have any other books. There were no other books. They would read these books. And he said, and as you, as you read the account of his life, he said, I would read these and I would think, man, if like, I want to be respected like my wife respected her father. I want to be like that. And so, so he decided he was going to clean up his act. And so he stopped cussing. And his neighbors all said, you know, he must have had a dramatic conversion. He's wonderful. And uh, he really, though, started to love the praise of this righteous appearance. Uh, He said, we had, uh, besides these books, not much more in our household stuff than a dish or a spoon betwixt the two of us. And their first daughter, Mary, was born in 1650 and... uh, it didn't take long for them to figure out that their first little girl, Mary, was blind. They would have three more children, Elizabeth, Thomas, and John. The young people did attend church together, and uh, they had their children baptized. And one Sunday, as the vicar preached a sermon against Sabbath-breaking, Bunyan took the sermon to heart. He had always skipped church and played these sports, and... and uh, it convicted him, but it says when after he, after the sermon was over and he ate food, he said he forgot all about it and he was all into himself again. And he decided he he was and he got even more into playing sports. So here he was doing it on the village green later that day after being convicted of God. And he says he said he felt a voice speak so deep in his heart uh, that it shook him up. This was like a turning point in his life. He said, will you leave your sins and go to heaven or will you have your sins and go to hell? And from that point on, he was messed up in his mind. He's like, you know, he had always had speaking in his heart, his appetites and always in his heart speaking all the things he wanted to do, but never had good spoken into his heart and questioned him like this. And it kind of, it kind of freaked him out. He, uh, lived he tried to put on this affront to live this righteous life and I'm, I'm looking for the quote that i saved here because um he said this he said god began to change 
me from the inside, but I tried to put on the appearance of a godly man first on the outside, gaining praise by many. And the more this happened, the more I liked it. He said, but later and now when I recounted, I was nothing more than a quote, painted hypocrite who loved to be well thought of others. And during this time, he was in Bedford, not, not far from this. He was walking by and there were these poor women. He calls them poor women. I don't know why. I guess he knew they were pretty ragged looking. And they were standing around and they were talking. And I, I wanted to try to describe this to you, but I just thought, I don't think you can describe it any better than he did. So if you can listen to just a minute of this, I want you to hear what happened and tell me if it sounds familiar to you. Upon that day, the good providence of God did cast me to Bedford to work on my calling, which he was a tinker, so he was going around trying to find things to fix. And in one of the streets of that town, I came to where there were three or four poor women sitting at a door in the sun. They were talking about the things of God and being now willing to hear them discourse. I drew near to hear what they said, for I now was a brisk talker also myself in matters of religion. He loved to go around and talk about doctrine and God and all this stuff. And, and, he, and like people started treating him respectful and he, they started thinking he, and he liked that. So he thought, I'm going to find some women who are going to think I'm good too. And he, as, but as he began to listen to them, he began to understand that what they had. He didn't have. I drew near here what they said, for I was always ready to talk, but I heard and I understood not, for they were far above. They were out of my reach, for their talk was about a new birth, about the work of God on their hearts. Also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and that what words and promises they had been refreshed and comforted by and supported against the temptations of the devil. Moreover, as I listened, they reasoned of the suggestions of the temptation by Satan and how they told each other how they had been afflicted by him and how they were born up under their under these assaults. They discoursed of their own wretchedness of heart, their unbelief that condemned them, their They abhorred their own righteousness that when they tried to do good, they realized it was filthy and insufficient to do them any good. He said, as they talk, I began to think about myself. And I thought, what joy are they talking about? I don't understand it. They spoke with such pleasantness of the scripture and their appearance of grace in all that they said, they were to me as if they had found a whole new world that I couldn't even see into. As if they were people that dwell alone and were not to be reckoned among their neighbors. At this I felt my own heart begin to shake as ministering my condition to be nothing. For I saw that in all my thoughts about religion and salvation that the new birth had never even entered my mind. Neither knew I comfort of the word of these promises The deceitfulness and treachery of my own wicked heart was not even seen to me. As for secret thoughts, I took no notice of them, neither did I understand what Satan's temptations were, now how they were to be withstood and resisted. Thus, therefore, when I heard and considered what they said, I left them, and I went about my employment again. But their talk and their discourse, it kept going on in my mind, and I couldn't quit thinking about what they had said. My heart would tarry with them for I was greatly affected with their words for because of them I was convinced that I wanted to know the true tokens of what godliness meant and also because of them I was convinced of the happy and blessed condition of them 
I should often make it my business to be going down that street again. And I would be finding these women, these poor women, for I could not stay away. These poor women that weren't even talking to him. He's just like, if I could just sidle up over there by the doorway and I could just hear him talk. He's like, oh man, man, what they're talking about, I want to know. The more I went among them, the more I questioned my own condition. And as I still remember presently, I found two things within me at which I sometimes marvel. Especially considering what a blind, ignorant, sordid, and an ungodly wretch I was. One of the very great softness and tenderness of heart that I saw among them caused me to fall under the great conviction by the Holy Spirit. They asserted that was other. the other great bending in my mind was a continual meditating on it. All other things which at any time I heard and read. By these things my mind was now turned that I became like a horse leech at the vein. Crying out, give, give. He's saying, I wanted more. I wanted more. I kept hearing him talking. I wanted more and I wanted more. I was... It, my heart was so fixed on eternity and on things about the kingdom of heaven that it is so far as I knew, though as yet God knows, I knew but little, that neither pleasures nor profits and persuasions nor threats could loosen it or make me let go of its hold. And though I may speak of it with shame, yet it is in this very deed of truth that it would have been as difficult for me to have taken my mind from heaven to earth as I have found it often since to get it again from this earth. To heaven. How many of your hearts hearing these things burn within you and remember what it was like when you heard those words of life for the first time and you're just like, oh, I got to have more of that. I don't know who these weirdos are. I, I, I don't know what their lives are about, but they sound, they sound like they've got something that I want. Oh, God's been so good to us, guys. Bunyan, he didn't care about what their doctrine was. And they, they had it wrong, by the way. Because I, I know, because I got it right. Uh-huh. He joined their church. It was called the Bedford Free Church. Soon after, his heart was burning with passion for Christ. And he began to just, wherever he went, he couldn't help himself. He just... Started preaching it to people like, man, you should, you should be a preacher. In fact, his church says, preach. We want to hear it. People started calling him in factories and, and out in fields. And they're like, oh, preach to us, Bunyan. Preach. And he would. His local church ordained him a minister, but he was, he was not ordained by the Church of England. It was by this free church. In the free church, they, they weren't right about lots of things, really. I'm reading... And, but it didn't matter. He found some Christians, guys. And this is what happens. People find Christians and they may find themselves in a oneness Pentecostal church somewhere. They may find themselves in a free will Baptist church somewhere. They may find themselves a Quaker or a Mennonite or a, a Mormon or whatever. They find themselves around people whose lives have been changed no matter how bad their doctrines are. And they say, I want more of what they have. And so they take all they have, good and bad. But what they end up getting is Christ. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to him. The rest of the story is more familiar to us than the part I just shared. That's why I shared it. But after God calls him to preach and he begins preaching as if he needed more depth 
God takes his beautiful wife, the mother of his four children, and leaves him destitute of her love and comfort. He's 30 years old. He has four small children. But he follows a call to preach amid the sorrow, taking his loss and giving it to the great comforter. In time, God sends him a young woman named Elizabeth, though she was... She was the age of my little Elizabeth now. Between 17 and 18, by all accounts, she was a woman who was devoted, like my Elizabeth, to the service of God. She was blessed with fortitude and determination. She takes on the responsibility of these four little children, and immediately after they are married, becomes pregnant. Bunyan preaches wherever he feels the call, outside in small groups around the countryside. Despite of his lack of education, without an official ordination by the Church of England, he offers the church who had called him to preach and many others all that he has. And less than a year after he's married, he is arrested for preaching. He was not breaking the law, but officials of the kingdom of the United Kingdom or of England at the time They were worried he may instigate a rebellion. His preaching was so passionate. They're afraid they were going to follow him against the country because they were in the midst, of course, of another civil war almost. His messages were not like that. They were far from any any hint of rebellion against any kingdom that he lived in, but he was certainly against the kingdom of darkness. As difficult as it was to be imprisoned and separated from his new wife, now great with child, only eight days into his three-month sentence, Elizabeth from the stress give birth to a stillborn baby. He can't go to her. He cannot comfort her. He said, oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon his head on my poor wife and my children. Yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. His three-month sentence is extended into a 12-year exile of hardship as he chooses rather to follow the reproaches of Christ than to take the easy way out. He could have signed a document saying that he wouldn't preach, but you know what he knew, Jonathan? (laughs) He knew that there was a fire that was shut up in his bones and that the call of God in his life was to preach the Word of God and that he would do it. It wasn't against the law, but they just didn't want him to do it. So they, 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 they locked him up, wouldn't let him out many times there are times he wants to quit sign the paper should i sign it elizabeth should i sign it and you know what she said she said the man i married would never sign that but honey i see you suffering and i see you poor and i could get out i could take care of you oh honey the man i married the godly man the man who stands for what's right he would never sign a paper like that and bunny would go oh yeah that's right I'm the strong man. His wife was a rock. She went to the courts for him on his behalf, pleading his case, but they wouldn't let him out. She was a rock for many years. as his little blind daughter and their other children. Bunyan earned a meager amount of money making shoelaces and working as a tinker from his prison cell were the only means he had to provide for his poor family. But they were, as it says in all historical accounts, all his family were dependent on the kindness of merciful souls 
who knew their plight. He could not provide enough for them to eat. Their public humility, but their determination was seen by the jailer and the townspeople as their little blind daughter would feel her way through the town. To the cell, to the, to the jail, to reach through, to hold her daddy's hand and encourage him and bring him things to his cell. It began to touch the jailer and the people and the jailer would sneak him out and let him go home and stay the night once in a while and even let him go preach at secret meeting places once in a while in so much that during his imprisonment he had another child. The decade of suffering and separation from his family and their suffering in deep poverty because of his imprisonment became a womb of his many inspiring works. He wrote 60 books and booklets the love and respect he gained from his keepers, providing him the visits that even allowed him to, to, to go and continue some of his work. While he was in prison, they made him the pastor of the Bedford Church. And then they soon let him out after that. His humble service to his king marked his life and his life was never thought of as great man as he is thought of today. Even the story of his death is a fitting narrative of his truth. In 1672, the laws and circumstances changed and he never relented, but they let him out because the laws were changed. Bunyan devoted his time to writing, preaching, and lovingly shepherding those under his care. He continued as a pastor of the Bedford meeting and he traveled over Bedfordshire and adjoining counties on horseback to preach, becoming known affectionately to all the people around as Bishop Bunyan. According to a historical account, of his life by George Offor for Banner of Truth. This account in 1688. At the age of 59, Bunyan fell ill with what was described at the time as the sweating sickness, described as a malady as mysterious and fatal as cholera. It took his strength. He could hardly walk. He could hardly get up. He didn't know what to do. But his faithful godly wife helped him she nursed him and he was especially eager to get through being sick because he had things to do and one of the things that he had to do was there was a man whom he knew and he and his son had gotten in a big fight and the and the dad was hard and stubborn and the boy was as well and he said i'm going to disinherit i'm going to disinherit this boy of mine And he thought, if I could just get better. He said, I know if I could just get better, if I could just get to them, that I could help the situation. Under the careful management of his affectionate wife, his health became sufficiently restored to allow him to go on an errand worthy of his full attention and his remaining energy. Bunyan, if you remember, keenly knew the pain of the separation of a father and a son. It no doubt was a constant pain to him and part of the stripes of his own life that God used to heal others. A man he knew well had been seriously offended with his son and had threatened to disherit him. The painful rift in the family moved Bunyan to action in spite of his current hell. To prevent the double mischief of a father dying in anger with his child and the evil consequence of the child being cut off, Bunyan again ventured in his weak state on his accustomed work to win the blessings of the peacemaker. He made a journey on horseback to Reading, it being the only mode of travel at the time, and he was rewarded with success, and he was able to reconcile 
this father and this son. This doesn't seem like a lot of important work for such an important man. But I'm telling you, he understood what it was to be a man of the kingdom. The two were reconciled and and Bunyan was so excited he wanted to go to London to tell his friend John Studwick, the grocer, about it because somehow he was connected to it. But on the trip he was overtaken by heavy rains and it was cold. Drenched and chilled to the bone, he made it to Studwick's home but soon fell ill with a fever from which he would not recover. In an exhausted state, he found kindly refuge in the house. He was seized with the fever and his much-loved wife, who had so powerfully pleaded for his liberty with the judges into whom he had been united for now 30 years, she was a great distance away. And so history does not tell us that she came or that his children were able to be with him, but instead he was alone with his friend and those that lived nearby. This account says his resignation was exemplary. He only expressions were a desire to depart and to be with Christ, to be dissolved. His sufferings lasted for 10 days. His last words as he struggled with death were, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt through the meditation for the mediation of his blessed Son receive me. Though a sinner were I... Hope I were ere long shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlasting and happy. He knew he was dying. In his final moments, he mustered the strength for a few more words. He looked up to God and said, take me. I come to thee. He died at Studwick's house on the morning of August 31st. 1688 and was buried in the tomb that belonged to Studwick at Bunhill fields it is a non-conformist burial ground where also the famous hymn writer Isaac Watts is buried like Christ he was buried in a borrowed grave worthy now in our eyes unworthy in his own blessed was this peacemaker Bunyan was indeed the child of God More like the publican that beat his breast in Luke 18, standing afar off that would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Justified in his prayers as this publican was. Bunyan was more like the publican and more like the centurion of Luke chapter 7. Here in our text, I'll read it for you again. Now when he had ended all of his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that they would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, He is worthy for whom this should be done, for he loves our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And he was now not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Folks, none of us are worthy to come to the Lord. None of us are worthy to ask him to come to us. Amen. But he comes. The question is today, who are we like? 
Are we like the centurion? Are we like Bunyan? Or are we like the proud of heart that despise when we are looked down upon and not treated with great respect? Are we despotic in our homes or are we humble, godly men who lead our families not from a position of importance and power, but from the lowly estate that God has called us in? Let us pray. Lord, in the shadow of your greatness, as we gaze upon your glory, we see that we are so insignificant. We are like the mist, the withering grass, the non-remembered multitudes who die and are forgotten. And you are the Lord evermore. Lord, in your word, you said that you will allow us somehow to share in your glory. We certainly don't need to tell you that there's no reason on earth that you should do that other than your own mercy and greatness and glory. And so we rejoice today. We are happy to be included in the humility of life that you call us to. That when you shall appear, we shall share with you in glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.